July 7th, 1980. It's approaching midnight at the Snack Shack in Mundy's Corner, and the drinks keep flowing. The Snack Shack is a tiny roadside tavern in Mundy's Corner, Pennsylvania, about six miles west of the Cambria County seat of Evansburg. Beer isn't the only thing on tap this evening. That's because this establishment is a hangout for members of the Outlaws, a nationwide biker gang with a heavy reputation. And in their midst on this night are three undercover state police officers investigating club members for drug dealing. Violence cuts through the hazy evening. According to subsequent courtroom reports by the Altoona Mirror newspaper, members of the Outlaws convince themselves that these strangers at the snack shack are members of the Pagans, a rival biker gang. Officer Clifford Job Jr. is hit with a baseball bat. Officer Brian Craig is struck by a club. Outlaw Scott Fetzer of Evansburg holds a 38 caliber Derringer to Officer Job's head as he drags him outside. Fellow outlaw David Graves tells Fetzer to kill the officer. Fearing for his life, Officer Job grabs a gun from his boot and he rolls behind a car. He identifies himself as a police officer and fires two shots at the snack shack. He also tells fellow officer William T. Mattis, who was outside when the fight began, to go in and call for backup. As Officer Mattis enters the bar, another shot rings out. Bartender and outlaw member Nicholas Cush fires a shotgun blast into Mattis' stomach. He falls. Officer Job, meanwhile, arrests outlaws Fetzer and Kenneth Swope of Johnstown and Philip Roche of Redlock as they try to drag a nearly unconscious Craig outside. Officer Craig and Officer Mattis survive, but suffer permanent injuries from the incident. And all seven outlaws were convicted on a total of 38 charges. They include Fetzer, Graves, and Cush, as well as Dennis Anderson of Evansburg, Roche of Redlock, Michael Sekerish of Nantiglo, and Kenneth Swope of Johnstown. Prior to his eventual suspension in the late 1980s, Judge Joseph Okiki presided over the trial for members of this biker gang. He'd tell friends and colleagues that he feared for his life, that the outlaws vowed vengeance for their lengthy prison terms. One of the outlaws, however, would later contend that there was more to this story, that it was Okiki who not only demanded bribes from the bikers, but also asked them to commit violence on his own behalf. This is Jailing the Judge. Fast forward to June 3, 1988, several years after the outlaw incident in Mundy's Corner. The Connemaw Valley High School trumpeteers are assembled in the packed Cambria County Courthouse in Evansburg. Their performance? A rousing rendition of God Bless America. It's a full house here, and a who's who of county and even state figures. County Bar Association President E.R. Mike Walker is there, as well as Bishop Joseph V. Adamek of the Altoona Johnstown Diocese. Even Justice John A. Flaherty of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania made an appearance. The occasion on this day is the swearing-in of Cambria County President Judge Joseph F. Okiki, or, as some would whisper, a coronation. Who was Okiki? Let's hear it from Supreme Court Justice Flaherty, who lauded the judge that day with the following speech. The man of humble beginnings. He was born in the village of Park Hill, in a home that had no running water. He thereafter attended Franklin High School, was the valedictorian of the graduating 
Justice Flaherty went on. The day was a momentous one for Okiki, the son of humble Eastern European immigrants. Later that day, the judge took his oath, swearing to uphold justice in Cambria County. But what could have been one of the best days of his life was likely among the worst days of his life, because it was this day, Okiki later said that he learned he was target of an expansive state police investigation, a major public corruption case in which he would be accused of frequenting brothels, tipping off number runners, and demanding kickbacks in exchange for favorable rulings. So what really happened back then? We spoke to Okiki's associates, his friends, and his widow. We dug up archival interviews with his enemies, and we talked to the individuals who investigated and ultimately prosecuted him for a closer-than-ever look at the case that attained international infamy through reports from the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and Bill O'Reilly of Inside Edition. We sat down with Cambria County's current president judge, Norman A. Krumnacher III. The judge told us that he knew Okiki better than most. I knew Joe Kiki from the time I was born. The reason being was, and I can't give you the year, this is so long ago, my father was the city solicitor in the early 60s and gave Joe Kiki and another attorney whose name escapes my mind jobs uh, like per diem type work. Uh, for the city when they were researching properties for the Redevelopment Authority. In his early years, Krumenacher said he regarded Okiki in the same way that many others did, as a brilliant legal mind. One of the most brilliant men I've ever met in my life. But he was at the edge. And I do, do believe over time, and I'm no MD, that he had a nervous breakdown that was never diagnosed. Another man who grew to know Judge Okiki was George Fatman, former editor of the Tribune Democrat newspaper and later news director at WJAC-TV. Okiki went from little-known attorney to prominent public figure during his unsuccessful run for U.S. Congress in 1970 and successful run for judge in 1971. Fatman described Okiki as both intelligent and more than a little combative. He intensely disliked the Tribune Democrat, and that never went away. Uh, I never found out why he intensely disliked the Tribune Democrat. But I think it was part of his personality and the personality of a lot of ethnic people in Johnstown that there was kind of this power structure, you know, the uh, Northern Europeans, I guess, at, who looked down their noses at these poor people with uh, Slavic background and so forth. And, uh, and I sensed that all over Johnstown. And Okiki was a kind of the epitome of that. Uh, you could you could tell that he felt put down, even though he was 
brilliant man. And as Okiki was rising through the judicial ranks in Cambria County, Walt Komorowski and Bill Russell were getting to know the judge in their own kind of way. That's because Komorowski, a trooper with the State Police White Collar Crime Unit, and Russell, a corporal with the State Police Vice Unit, were tasked in April of 88 with taking a deep dive into corruption in Cambria County. Russell passed away in recent years, but we asked Komorowski for an inside look at the genesis of the Okiki investigation. He said that it all started when his new supervisor called for a meeting about illegal gambling in the area. Troop A vice members, and uh, they were two or three of them at the meeting, complained that it seemed like every time we began an operation, the state police began an operation in the mountains, were got up so quickly that they were unsuccessful. And by investigations, I'm talking about a covert undercover operation that nine times out of ten involved electronic surveillance. And by electronic surveillance, I mean phone taps, wiretaps, that sort of thing, and standard visual um, observation and surveillance techniques. And, of course, Captain Miracle wanted to know, well, what's the problem up there? Why aren't you successful? Why is this information getting out? And there were some allegations of political corruption. And he wanted, he demanded to know who's politically corrupt. What's going on up there? And the Troop A vice officers said that each of these operations at their beginning required the signature of a judge approving the electronic surveillance, approving a search warrant. There are approvals that you need to get before you can proceed. Well, the next question was, well, if we've got somebody that's dirty up there, we should investigate them. Who are we talking about? And there were various names tossed around uh, at the magistrate level and at the uh, uh, criminal court level. And one of the names that was tossed out at that time was Judge Okiki. It wasn't the first time Komorowski heard the name Okiki. My ears perked up because, ironically, just a few weeks prior to that, I'd been approached by folks I'll call confidential informants, people that uh, I would look to uh, in the community for information uh, about other investigations. And I'd had a conversation about Judge Okiki. And so I mentioned this at the meeting, and Miracle says, okay, you and you, and he pointed to Corporal Russell, are going to go to Cambria County and see if we can, we can develop this investigation. And Corporal Russell at that time was, uh, was a, a, a vice officer. He worked undercover exclusively. He had a beard. He never wore a uniform. He never wore uh, a suit and tie. And I always worked in a suit and tie. So we began, and uh, he didn't change the way he looked, and I didn't change the way I looked. So it was an odd combination from the beginning, but it really worked in our favor because when we began to interview people or, or talk to people about the possibility of uh, beginning an investigation into Judge Okiki, their first thought was, who are these guys, you know, and they're... There was, there's always a hesitancy to talk about people in power in politics. Understandably, um, if it gets back to the person they're talking about, there's, there could be repercussions. So that's how it started, and it started that very day. 
we drove up to uh, Cambria County that afternoon, and I introduced him to some of the folks that I'd been speaking with, and um, it, that's that's that was the that was the beginning of it. Komorowski remembered feeling mounting pressure as the probe began. He understood that Okiki was a powerful figure in the area, and he realized that some people might be reluctant to cooperate. And the old saying, if you're going to throw arrows at the king, make sure you kill the king. In a forthcoming grand jury presentment, Judge Okiki would be accused of using his seat on the bench as a bully pulpit to harass female subordinates, enhance his personal wealth, and run the county like a battleship commander. Okiki would be accused of requiring his personal secretary to take dictation while he was stripped to his underwear, of visiting brothels, and of using campaign cash from donors to pay for his own personal expenses. And that was just the tip of the proverbial iceberg. The prosecution was establishing its narrative. Okiki and his defense team, meanwhile, were crafting one of their own. In their version of things, it wasn't the judge's behavior that put him in trouble. Rather, it was the orchestrated smear effort by a group of powerful enemies that put his career and even liberty in jeopardy. Exactly who were these enemies? And conversely, why was Okiki possibly looking to set up a countywide investigating grand jury of his own? We'll hear next from his widow and others in episode 2 of Jailing the Judge. Next time on Jailing the Judge. His behavior was getting so strange. And this is a little courthouse. I mean, you can't keep any secrets here. Uh, he said, look at those bullet holes. He said, uh, the, the, those were shots from the outlaws at, at my windows. One of his daughter's um, roommate was murdered, and he thought it had to do with the outlaws. Witch Johnny told me that he would cut off my head and stick it up my rear end. Let me say this. As big as his head was at the time, you couldn't have cut up an elephant. Jailing the Judge is hosted and written by me, Bruce Seeley. Reporting conducted by me and Eric Kita. Produced by Kita and Michelle Ganassi. The show is scored by Billy O'Shea with the theme music, The Party After the Show, provided by the crew of The Half Moon. Graphic design by Rick Kasmer. Special thanks to Brian Whipke and the team at Gannett. This podcast is a product of Our Town and the Daily American. For online extras, visit dailyamerican.com. Oh